Welcome to another edition of Legends of Film. I'm William Chamberlain. Today, we have an interview with director Dick Richards. Among the movies Dick Richards has directed, The Culpeper Cattle Company, Rafferty and the Gold Dust Twins, Farewell My Lovely, and March or Die. March or Die will be shown Saturday, September 10th, 2016 at 2 p.m. at the Downtown Public Library in the main auditorium on 615 Church Street. More later, on to the interview. You co-wrote the original story to March or Die with David Zella Goodman. What was your attraction to the 1920s French Foreign Legion? When I was a kid, probably I must have been 10 or 11 years old, whatever, nine, uh, my uncle had just gotten back from the service. And I went to visit him at the uh, Navy Hospital in Bethesda, Maryland. And he had asked me about his friend, uh, Christopher. And Margo and I had a great relationship. He, you know, for four years I didn't see him, but he still, we just had a good thing. And I said, Christopher, oh God, get me your sister's number. Yeah, I haven't spoken to him in two years. But anyway, he got Christopher, I'll make it short, he got Christopher's number and uh, they talked and he got out of the hospital about a year later. I bumped into, they had Christopher and he, and Christopher seemed to be drinking a lot. And my uncle explained to me that he had a, he got what was called a Dear John letter during the Second World War. And you know, I guess you guys know what a Dear John letter is. Oh, yes. And he, uh, it, he was terrible about it. He just couldn't contend with it. He had been a war hero, actually, during the Second World War. And he, it just got to him, and he uh, disappeared. About nobody knew where he went. About two years later, when I must have been fifteen, I was fourteen, whatever. Uh, my uncle came back and told everyone that he finally found him, and he's in the French Foreign Legion, and stationed in Morocco. I, I didn't know French Foreign Legion, and my uncle explained it to everybody what it was and why he did it, and. You know, that's how I first got into it. That's how I knew about it. And I sort of remember seeing some movies about it, but I really it hit me right in the head that night. Of course, I, he was a good guy and sort of a member of the family in a strange way. And I was very sad about it because my uncle made it sound sad. He, these guys just never come back, and, you know, and it felt like he was dying, you know. Anyway, years passed. It's still in my brain. And I uh, started to think about making movies, and I wanted to have a plan of what I wanted to do, and I loved period movies. And I went to the Foreign Legion Museum of Marseille, France, and just thought it over, and I really got into it, more or less. And I uh, started thinking about it. I read a sort of a story about it that didn't go very far, and I went back again two years later and met some foreign legionnaires and took them to lunch and dinner and they were there recruiting. They had been in Morocco. They didn't know my uncle's friend or whatever, but they had been in Morocco and uh, told me how it was and they told me some interesting stories and how women would follow their men to Morocco or to the, near the outpost. If their men got killed, they would stay on. And some of them became drunkards, and prostitutes. And it sort of hit me in the head. And I sort of never forgot it, but I, it was, 
it just was very real to me. These guys were real, and they weren't just they weren't kidding. So I decided to look into it further, do some research on it, and put it aside. Basically, put it aside because I, you know, I wasn't prepared to get a studio to get me that much money to do it. I wasn't in a position to say to the listen, I need to do a period movie with 400 uniforms for the uh, Foreign Legion and I want to go on location. I don't want to shoot it in Hollywood. I just won't do it. But I will go anywhere in the, uh, Algeria or any place you say that any place that deserves this location. And we thought about it, thought, and suddenly I got, I got Gene Hackman interested in it. And that's the way you make movies in Hollywood, basically. You get actors interested, and they, they uh, set the stage for you getting it done. Because, quite honestly, uh, the actors rule. In some cases, directors rule. Most, some cases, directors rule. Usually, the actors rule. And if you've got a script that sort of works, studios take a chance with them because they feel they'll bring in an audience. And I cast the movie and uh, started thinking seriously about it. The rest was, uh, you know, I made a movie. But that's how I got interested in it. Just by, and I got interested in another movie just about the same way. On Culpepper Cattle Company, I was doing a commercial in San Antonio, Texas. And I wanted some older guys in the commercial. There's one of those old man's home there, and they got guys from 70 years on and up, and most of them are covering alcoholics, but they're, they're good guys, and they got a couple of hours to have to speak to them. Well, I did meet one, and he told me that he was called Little Mary. And I looked at him, and he said, yeah, I was a kid, I was a cook, and there became the basis for Culpepper Cattle Company. So what I'm saying is, in my life, I'm inspired by these things, and I love period movies, and I think the best movies I've ever done have been dealt with period movies. I think maybe I should have been born 100 years ago. <laughs> anyway, that's it. That, you know, and David Goodman, of course, I met uh, through a friend of mine, a very famous director called Herb Ross. We became buddies, and... Uh, his wife is a famous ballerina, and I, you know, we all, they're from New York, and I was from New York, and we sort of all got together in, in Hollywood. It's such a diverse bunch of lunatics that if you get, you know, a bunch of people you really like, it's a, you know, you really stick with them. It's a miracle, and they're very honest with each other. You know, they're very honest, you know, New York guys are really honest about just what's happening. Because we've all been brought up in the streets under, you know, adverse conditions. You know, we're street kids, basically. You guys, live, you guys live in another world. I'm just kidding you. You guys live in a nice world. But here we live in cement. I'm being honest, you know. We live in cement here. And we, we go to see movies with kids. We can't imagine somebody on a horse going 20 miles, 30 miles an hour and shooting. You know, and, and hitting somebody, we just don't think that's real. Because we, we nothing becomes real. We're so hardened by the conditions that we, nothing is real. 
started to laugh, but I, as the first time I said that, that's, that's funny. Well, I also want to ask you, talking about diverse, uh, March or Die had this international cast, and you had American, British, French, Italian, and Swedish actors. What are the difficulties did you have with such a diverse cast? None. Absolutely none. They were all wonderful. And I had an actor who I was warned, he's the most difficult actor in, in the world, not only in France, in the world. His name was Marcel Basufi. I called Marcel and I, he said, I don't have lunch. He said, if you're going to have me, I want you to spend a lot of money for dinner for me, which is okay. We went to dinner and I said, Marcel, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to Rome tomorrow morning and I'm going to cast this party with you or some Italian who looks like you. And it's sort of a joke. I said, here's the problem. I'm under tremendous pressure because there's holidays, you know, Muslim holidays coming up, and I don't want to run into them because we'll, we'll lose two or three days of shooting. Ramadan was one of them. And I said, we've got a plan, and we've got to be out of the, our location. And uh, we've got to be on that, go back to Spain. So I, I just can't deal with you know, chaos. And I said, I think, I think you know how to do that. <laughs> he laughed. You know, he didn't speak English very well, but he got the message immediately. I said, here's the thing. I just want to be around buddies, friends, you know, and I think you'd be a good friend, but I got to tell you that I don't suffer bizarre situations. I don't do it, I said. And if we're going to do something together, I want us to be proud of it. Because I think you're perfect for the part. He said, I read it, I like it. And he said, I really want to work with Gene Hackman. I said, how about me? He said, I don't care too much about you. <laughs> he said, I like Gene Hackman. I've been honest with you. <laughs> and we got along fine. That led us to a great relationship. I didn't have any problem. As a matter of fact, they interviewed me once. In how did you get along with Marcel? Was, I was great. Unfortunately, Marcel died just a few years after that. And I went to his funeral. I went all the way from Los Angeles to France for Cyril. I just couldn't get over this guy. He was such a good actor. He was awesome. And he plays second in command under Gene Hackman. Yeah, and Marcel Batsufi. He was awesome. Great actor. He was also the hit man in the French Connection. Absolutely. That's why. He Absolutely. Was. I got him from. I got him through Billy Freakin, who was a friend of mine, and Billy. Uh, it told me that you've got to just be honest with him and tell him the truth and everything will be fine. And that's what I did. You once said about the Culpeper Cattle Company, I didn't want the audience to be aware of the camera in any way. I just wanted the audience to experience what the people of that period went through at that time. Is that what you were trying to accomplish with March or Die? Yes, absolutely the same. Here, here's what's happening. As you may know, I've been, I, I've been a cinematographer, along with being a director. I had my own ideas of what should happen. If you go back into the old movies, you'll find the zooms were done on dollies, which means a lens zoom you can detect. It's a move where you zoom in and you can really feel it. But a dolly zoom is what they did. It's slower. You take in much more. And it's really, you can't really feel it. So I had to, uh, that was one of the things I did. I didn't want any quick 
hands or tilts, and I didn't want to do anything they did that I used to in commercials. You have to realize, yeah, I didn't come from a world where we did that. I was part of the, uh, yeah, you know, the revolution of the 60s in advertising. We, we came up with that, you know, full-frame cuts and all that stuff, and I, I didn't want to do that. I just wanted somebody to get there and not feel the camera. Not, and the way to do that is stay, you know, just let the things play out without moving as much. And I did that. And where I had to not do that, I did it in, a, in a, one of the, some, uh, you know, aficionados uh, claimed that I did the best shootout ever done in Hollywood in the bar scene in Culpeper. Now, I'm not saying that's a, uh, you know, something I had planned. Every shot was planned, and it exploded. And people commended people, Film people love that shot. That, that's a few minutes. But again, uh, I did feel the camera there, but I uh, couldn't help it because I wanted that to explode off the screen. But other than that, even the, even the long shots on March or Die were done not with you know panning over to the panning over quickly to the uh, enemy coming back to a machine gun coming back. It was all done in cuts. On March or Die, you worked with cinematographer John Alcott, who photographed uh-huh. Kubrick's *A Clockwork Orange* and Barry Lyndon. Could you discuss the collaboration between you two? Absolutely. Well, Stanley Kubrick was a friend of mine going back to when we both were still photographers. I had been on uh, Clockwork Orange just for a few days, but actually on Barry Lyndon, I was taken by the the way that Stanley and, and John worked. And they were very uh, honest about the photography. Everything they did was so painstaking. And he had such great, you know, the ability to... Uh, deal with Stanley, who in himself was a great cinematographer, and I liked that, and we talked about the film. I told him what I wanted. I just wanted to look like a black and white movie, basically, and I wanted long, long dollies, and if you go to the train station, you'll see one of the best dolly shots he's ever done. I mean, we planned that shot for days where they get off the uh, train and they're back from the war before they sing the Marseillaise. Uh, that was done exactly. The light on that was beautiful. And the, and the bar scene, and he did that light without my even saying one word. He was that good. I never discussed that with him. He just knew instinctively what we should do. I could say I say I did it all myself or I, that wouldn't be true. He really did that by himself, and I think it's one of the best photographed scenes in the movie, if not anywhere. I know Stanley Kubrick loved it. Yeah, also for the uh, Culpepper Cattle Company, you used paintings uh, by artist Charles Russell and Remington. Did you use Oh, yeah, absolutely. For the visual design of March or Die? Yes, what I tried to do is give March or Die a film I love the and 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 uh, Culpepper, the idea that I want to go back to the people that were really there and look at the lighting as you would Rembrandt, look at his lighting today and go back. People 
use it. And I wanted to uh, feel, uh, and they were both with masters, and I decided to use that look in the movie, which meant no hard light, soft light, hard light when you had to possibly use it, and it changed, it changed everybody. All the scenes were done late in the afternoon. You plan that way. Here's the problem I've had with cinematographers. I've been one, and I must say I've known to that, uh, along with directing. But I know the look of a movie has become. Uh, people know that about me, and I usually use somebody I can talk to, who will listen and put what I say to work. Do if I have a vision for it. Some directors don't do that. They uh, get cinematographers who do what they want, and they don't get that involved. But to me, it, it was urgent for me to have a good-looking movie that I felt would fit the time. I didn't want it to look like a you know, contemporary movie. And if you go back to Culpepper, I dressed everybody in old clothes. I made some of the actors wear them overnight for weeks on end. So they looked rumpled as if they were out in the field. They would go into restaurants in Hermosillo, Mexico, dressed in dirty cowboy clothes. People got frightened. The Chinese restaurants, people absolutely got frightened. They see these big guys come in, eight or ten, and dress in, co- in dirty cowboy clothes. It was really funny. They thought there would be, there would be a shootout. Well, we were talking about that, the Culpepper Cattle Company, and uh, it has been called a revisionist Western, which favors uh, realism over romanticism. Is that what you were trying to do when you made Culpepper? Absolutely. I didn't want, you know, if you go back into nine out of ten Westerns, there's always a woman that some guy's given up. He's got to find revenge and get her back, or she's involved with another guy. And that wasn't what I wanted to do. I wanted to take little Mary, that's what they call Cook, young Cooks in those days, and see it through his eyes. And that's what my plan was. There were no romantic interests, nothing like that. These were real guys out on the range. Also, while we're on this, it won the Best Film Award at the San Sebastian Film Festival, and according to your website, Howard Hawks, who directed Red River, gave you the award, and both movies are about cattle drives. Did you exchange notes or ideas? Uh, well, he... <laughs> it's very funny. I arrived at the festival the morning of the thing, and Howard Hawks was, of course, a hero of mine. He did so many great movies, and he was diverse. You know, my girlfriend, he did a movie, my girlfriend, all the movies he did was with Cary Grant and Catherine Hepburn. He just was, he was my hero. And I, uh, of course, I see Red River, and I told him, I said, you know, Mr. Hawks, I know I'm getting an award, an award, and I know that you have something to do with it, and I want you to know that I paid homage to you in my one of my opening sequences. Yeah, I know that. I thank you for it, and you did a good job with it. But you see, there's something I didn't do, and that was really uh, bring the Western down to reality. And to me, that was a uh, great thing. Anyway, what happened to me, the most important thing happened at that time, I'll tell you, 
was that I accepted the award. They called me up the stage. There was an interpreter there, Howard Hall standing next to me, and, and I accepted the award as ladies and gentlemen in America, most young boys think of writing a great novel. And uh, today, you maybe feel if I may have gotten on the road to, to doing uh, a great movie because that's what most boys think of these days. You know, turn around. He, I swear he had tears in his eyes. He took me to dinner and he said, you know, that's a great speech. He said, it's true. Years ago, everyone wanted to write a great novel. Now they want to make a great movie. And it's sort of, you know, I spoke to him a couple of times after that, but I must say that he, he was a good guy. He told me things that he did. When I made a movie with Mitchum, I asked Mitchum if it was true, and he said, absolutely. He did some things that uh, they had some love-hate things going. I don't want to get into that with you, but it was funny. They did some funny stuff together. He's a great guy. Yeah. You you mentioned Mitchum, and I'll go ahead and ask my Mitchum question. You cast Robert Mitchum as Philip Marlowe in Farewell, My Lovely, and interviews yeah. Mitchum always was generally dismissive of acting. However, other actors call him a total pro. What's your opinion of Mr. Mitchum? Great actor. He, you know, here's what happened. I was a Ray, ever since I've been a kid. I was a Raymond Chandler fan. I love the first person within my psyche, you know. He, and then there were some speeches that Raymond Chandler wrote. I all I've got is a coat, a hat, and a gun. What I really need is two weeks vacation. You know, it said Mitchum, and I went to Mitchum and I said, "Listen, Bob, I know that you uh, you don't want to do very much, but I, I this movie's written for you." I said, Raymond Chandler, I had you in mind when we wrote this piece. And he looked at me and he said, <laughs> he said, let me tell you, has anyone ever told you that you bullshit? <laughs> As he said, excuse the expression, that's what he said to me. I said, no, I said, I'm telling you the truth. And you know what? In three days, I said, Bob, he said, he said don't say one word. He said, you're good with me. You're good with me. I like that. That was that was wonderful thing to say. I really appreciate that. You're good with me, and he was a good guy. He showed up. He knew just what I was saying. He teased me a lot, which I loved. He teased me so much. I mean, it was a show of friendship and respect. He told me things about myself that I couldn't believe. He said in front of audiences. In front of the cast and crew. Cast and crew, the same things really, really got me to laugh. I fell down laughing, as did everybody else. He had a great sense of humor. Great guy. Great. You know, I, I always wanted to work with somebody like that. Either be Jimmy Stewart, uh, him, and I also probably could have worked with uh, John Wayne before he passed away. That was another thing I could have done, that I should have done, that I didn't do. But I should have, I could have, I would have. Is a plight of every coward in the world. But anyway, yeah, it was a delight to work with. Great actor. And really well-read. Well-read. He's a very smart person. The cinematographer on Farewell, My Lovely, was John A. Alonzo, and 
The previous year, Mr. Lonzo was the cinematographer on another private eye detective movie that takes place in Los Angeles called Chinatowns, and they both have different looks. Was Chinatown ever discussed while making your movie? Yeah, I told him I didn't want Chinatown. I, I didn't want that at all. You know, uh, John replaced the cinematographer on the movie, and the lighting that was set up by the cinematographer John had to deal with. But with my film, I told him, John, this is what I want, and it was really good. We didn't have no problems. We, we got to it. We took out all black and white movies. I like this, I don't like that. We watched a bunch of them. And then we took still pictures we found that uh, Ouija took and different people took. I brought it to him. And this is a look, 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 look. And he did it. I mean, he did it. I like to say I helped him, but he, he did it. He listened to me, and we got along great about it. And I think it was a well-photographed film. I think it was certainly in competition with uh, uh, Chinatown. You look, that's what I feel. In fact, that's what's been said about it. But, you know, Chinatown was a great movie. I loved it. Also, I was curious, in Farewell, My Lovely, why did you cast crime writer Jim Thompson as uh, Judge Baxter Wilson? Well, <laughs> that's interesting. I, I met Jim about a year before I did the movie. And we had a great, uh, just a great uh, talk, just about writing. Because I told him I, I secretly write some of my stuff, and he laughed. And he said, "Well, I, you can secretly write anything I write. I, I don't mind it." And we were just joking. And I looked at him, and he was not—he was okay, but not in great health. And somehow, I was such a fan of his that when the part came up, and I started casting it. The people, I said, I know somebody with so much dignity. I mean, he and Jim had such dignity about him. I said, that's, the, that's my guy. That's my guy. And some people said, well, you know, he's too old. Then, years later, uh, a man who was 90 years old married some blonde beauty, who you probably remember. And she, she got him for $100 million or whatever. And she died, drug over I forget her name. But, some men do that. And he was a gentleman, smart, brilliant, and a, and a good friend, nice guy. I've read that a life of an actress is short, and you directed Charlotte Rampling in Farewell, My Lovely, and she's doing some well, of the best work of her career right now. Well, that, that proves them wrong. Do you know why? Because most actresses, what they do is, some of them, some of them do something I think is not very good. They get to about 40 years old, and suddenly somebody comes to them and says, listen, I got a part for you with a, a kid involved. He's uh, 16 years old. And they look at him and say, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm too young to have a 16-year-old kid. And then somebody comes in with another part with a kid, and suddenly they say, well, oh, my God. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to invest $50,000, and I'm going to get myself looking younger. Well... Uh, it doesn't really work that way. Because when you do a close-up of these people, you can, it's all over the place. You can see it. Very few of them escape that. So the people that go with it, like Meryl Streep, you know, and other people live through that, 
they go on to good careers. Uh, they really do. Yeah. Also in Farewell, My Lovely, you've got a small, non-speaking part for Sylvester Stallone, and just curious, how did you cast him in the film? Well, that's, that's you know, as <clears throat> in Hollywood, casting directors will give a director, you know, they'll say, okay, between 10 and 12, we're looking at extras for uh, women who uh, prostitutes at between two and five, we're looking for young gangsters. At eight o'clock, we're looking for whatever. And I go to those meetings, and uh, we, at that time, we just started taping people. The tape was very young. We had an old thing called a Sony camera, which wasn't very good. We taped the ones I was interested in, and somehow I looked at Sylvester, and I said, you know, he looks like a hood. He just has that look. I had to get a haircut, that period haircut, and I used him as as a hood. He got probably minimum pay for it at the time, but he was good. And uh, as a matter of fact, he gave one of the producers uh, Rocky to read. He never read it, and that would you know, you know, nobody would have read it from our set because we didn't think he was a see we treat him as an extra, more or less, even though he had a couple of lines. But I did involve, I rewrote the story a bit to give him more, more to do. I remember doing that. Okay. D- just a curiosity, why hasn't there ever been a good Blu-ray or a DVD put out of Farewell, My Lovely? Let me tell you, that movie was sponsored by a person named Lou Grade, an English television giant who got into the movie business and uh, started to uh, put everything out to everybody. He never had an organization like Paramount or one of the studios that believed in that kind of distribution. And he didn't know about that. So, um, So they took it. They kept selling it every two years to somebody else. And everyone was getting away with it. They didn't need it. People were buying it, using it, and it was being traded, mind you, on eBay for a lot of money at one point. And uh, they couldn't get it, and uh, nobody ever got around to it. Huh. I think there's somebody doing it now. Well, I hope so. As you can tell, I like that movie a lot. Uh, Thank you. Uh, it's my favorite movie, quite honestly. Oh, well, great. Uh on the Death Valley audio commentary, you stated several times that it's a fish out of water. And when I look at March or Die, every character in the movie is a fish out of water. And several of your movies tend to be that type of story. What's your attraction to that type of story? Well, I think it is, I, I think of that as an adventure. You know, uh, years ago, I hitchhiked from New York with a friend. And uh, we got to Denver, and this friend of mine said, I can't go on anymore. I said, you God, we're going to the West. We're going to, no, I'm not going to do it. Well, I did it by myself. It was an adventure. And, I, and the people I met, I, I really loved the adventure. This is when the years you didn't get killed when you were hitchhiking. <laughs> people, you know, you, today, if you hitchhike, you're a license stake. But in those days, people really saw you, they liked you, or you, 
look like somebody in distress, and they'd give you a list, and they would tell you their life stories. You had nothing to talk about. They would ask you yours, and you learned so much. Years later, Dalton Trombo told me, he said, I told him that I basically write some of the stuff myself, and I don't take credit for it, but I usually rewrite the scripts. And he, he said, you know, I said, but lately I can't find people who have had, sort of don't understand what it's all about. He turned to me and he said, you know what? He's nobody hitchhiking anymore. I couldn't believe he said that. Meaning, you know, nobody's getting that experience. And the experience of adventure was something I always dreamed of, you know, being a New York kid at one point and, uh, you know, being stuck in the cement jungle, anything, the dreams of adventure always stayed with me. And luckily I had uncles and people who were in the South and Midwest when I went to see them, I, I would always feel it an adventure. I just was into that. And I wanted people to understand, understand people who do that they witness an adventure. Does that make sense? Or yeah. Was, and you know, uh, Rafferty, uh, Alan Arkin, meets these two girls with that, and he goes on an adventure. You know, it's just, just into me. I always felt that way. You just mentioned Rafferty and the Gold Dust Twins, and it was starring Alan Arkin, who was trained at Second City, and Sally Kellerman, who's worked with Robert Altman a few times. Was there a lot of improvisation on that movie? Yes. Yes, I love that. I love that. One of the best scenes in uh, Feral My Love was improvised. We're running, uh, I'll tell you just a piece of information. We were at the Ambassador Hotel with about 300 extras dressed in tuxedos, and we were a day, late, day or two late in the production. And I had a chance to make up a day if everybody would stay an extra hour, but we had three pages of dialogue. And I uh, looked at Tony Zervi, who's a good actor, and Betcha Knight. I said, hey, Bob, what would happen if Tony sat, sat down and you knew what it was about, he was going to pay you off, you know he can pay off, but he offered to pay you off, and you turned it down, but the way you did, he made fun of you. And the fun on the set was that I was accused by Robert Mitchum of having him wear a Victor Mature's suit. And he said, I never, I never had the decency to dry clean it and smell that. It was a joke. It was a joke. That was Mitchum's way of... <laughs> Joking. It's a joke. I mean, it's funny. Everyone laughed. And it went around the set. Now, I gave them both a problem. They sat down. And uh, Tony Zerby, who's a crook, offers him a payoff. And he bitch him, looks at him, and he says, Yeah, take it. Get yourself a new suit. Well, we had to redub the whole scene. A complete cast and crew went up in an uproar, laughing. It was a great line. I didn't write the line. It was improvised by Tony Zerby. I could tell you I wrote the line, but it wouldn't be true. He wrote, he improvised. We got out of there in 20 minutes. We covered each one of them, and that was it. We were out, actually, in 20 minutes. We were finished with scene in 20 minutes. 
Yeah. Well, you've kind of touched on this earlier, just briefly, but when I look at your movies, Culpepper Cattle Company, Rafferty and the Goldust Twins, Death Valley, Farewell My Lovely, and March or Die, um, your characters are always going on a journey. Um, so uh, why is the journey an important theme in your movies? Because I think the audience, I hope, goes along that journey with them. If you're doing a job as a director and you've written it that way, you get writing that, you want them to experience that journey. There's nothing better than sitting in a theater and going on a journey with somebody, I feel, and worrying about them. You know, we get into movies, and if you're doing your job correctly as a filmmaker or writer, you, you want the people to get involved with their problem, and you want to root for them. Get through this. Don't, don't go there. Don't say, you know, you're root for them. You have to be worried about them. That, that is my own thing about, that's the answer to my, what I feel. I like the answer because it's real, it's honest. I feel I want people to go on that journey and be upset or happy about what they're going to deal with during the hour and a half they're going to watch this movie. I would like to thank Dick Richards for granting us the interview. Remember, come to the Downtown Nashville Public Library on September 10th, 2016 at 2 p.m. to see March or Die. Remember, it's free. Today's music is by David Shire from Farewell My Lovely. <laughs>